To assist, on a, to assist us in absorbing this quite radical distinction, the implications of which are foundational to our treatment of theories of nafsul amr, let us briefly indicate how it is able to show up the limitations of purely logical or even metaphysical treatment. The purely logical might simply determine the reference and the predicative, predicative scope of the different types of propositions that it utilizes. It is a requirement of the intelligibility and coherence of the logical system that logic must assume, for example, that mental propositions are of wider predicative, predicative scope than propositions that correspond to extra mental particulars. Since one can at least conceive of all manner of entities that do not correspond to extra mental particulars. Logic can impart to us the fact that some abstract- Impart to us, not prove that some abstract propositions which derive their truth value neither from minds nor extramental particulars must instead correspond to nafs al-amr, just as do all real extramental entities and some, but not all, mental propositions. It might even be within logic's scope to define a thing in nafs al-amr as a thing as it is in itself. However, logic can do no more than this. It cannot uncover an ontology. It's, it is not its function to affirm or negate, negate the existence of the mind extramental particulars or nafs al-amr or to determine what they are in themselves after all logic logic studies conceptions and assents insofar as they lead to discovery of new previously unknown conceptions and assents on the one hand it does not investigate on the, other on the <clears throat> on the other hand it does not investigate conceptions and assents with respect to existing or not existing in the mind with respect to whether they subsist in nafs al-amr, irrespective of the perspective of a subject or constitute the object of a pure perspective, like the fangs of a ghoul or, the men or like mental propositions. Logic does not investigate them from these viewpoints because they are not relevant to its aim. That's uh, note 50, Shamsadin al-Ambabi, his taqreer on al-Bajuri's hashi ala matni al-Sullam. And Shamsadin al-Ambabi was one of the great Mahakkakun uh, in uh, Egypt of, of the last century. In fact, logic cannot independently prove, uh, cannot act independently, independently to prove anything because, quote, proof only takes place by means of a demonstration that has a particular form that obtains via logic and, the, and particular matter that cannot be known from it, logic. This is from Sharh al-Mawaqif, or is this the, I think it's a Hashia, uh, sorry, Siddi, 51. Yeah, that's Hassan Chelebi on the Mu'atif, on Siddi The particularities of the matter of propositions cannot be known through logic. The only thing one derives from the science of logic is knowledge of the general suitability of principles which are known through, the, through other sciences to all possible results, Nataj. Even though all of the principles of logic are necessary, it is certainly the case that mistakes can be made pertaining to the aspect that constitutes the matter of propositions, end quote. Consequently, logic cannot tell us, cannot even tell us whether nafs al-amr itself actually exists at all. Paradoxically, although it is the science that, you that we utilize to guarantee, to try to guarantee our arrival at truth, it is unable to tell us whether there is even such a thing as truth. Instead, it is philosophy that has this task. Eleven <clears throat> um, so 
There's an important distinction that you're all familiar with between logical form and logical matter. What's form and matter in logic and what's form and matter in metaphysics, they're two different things, of course. Form in metaphysics means the distinct, the principle of distinctness that imparts the intelligibility onto the distinct thing in question and distinguishes it from all the other distinct things that it stands in relation to. And it's the Mabda of the Athar of the uh, Al Kharijiya. So, whatever that thing happens to be, uh, the form is, is that which constitutes the innermost essence of what it is to be that type of thing. Um, the matter, of course, is on the Aristotelian account, at least the pure potentiality um, that exists in a certain domain of being, potential for becoming determinate in terms of one or another forms. Then on the other hand, in logic, logical form is uh, al-sura. The, the sora is the particular um, configuration of the terms such that they yield necessary results by entailment. So um, uh, the al-shakil al-awwal in logic, for example, is such that the middle term is in the predicate position in the uh, the sughra and in the um, uh, uh, subject position in the kubra. So you say, for example, kul jism mu'allaf wa kul mu'allaf muhdath. So in the first uh, premise, it's in the predicate position. In the second premise, it's in the subject position. For kul jism muhdath. But whatever it happens to be, every A is B and every B is C. Right, every A will always equal C, regardless. But but that's not what the matter. The matter is then. Well, we're not really talking about A and B because that doesn't mean anything. What is it that we're talking about? Of course, in modern logic, when you say there is an X such that the X is blah blah blah, and then there's actually no link between um, secondary and first intelligibles, as Sidi Cream has beautifully shown in his book. Then you just are in kind of la la land. Um, and, you know, it's kind of what Sartre called the spirit of seriousness, that, you know, we're going to be doing a science, but then you're not really actually talking about anything. Um, and um, so, so that's form and matter. So, you know, matter is what, it, what is it that you're talking about? Are you talking about substance? Are you talking about madumat? Are you talking about horses? What are you talking about? Whatever you put into that syllogism, if the, if the form... Maulana Muhammad Saqaf. If the form is um, uh, the, the validity rests on form, uh, the soundness rests on the matter. Um, so 
really, strictly speaking, logic is, depending on one's demarcation, but strictly speaking, logic is studying the sora of reasoning. It's not really studying the matter of reasoning because that doesn't, it's not really um, supplied, it's not really within the remit of uh, of logic. Of course, depends how you define logic to some degree. If it's maqulat athania, min haythu tantabuqa al-maqulat al-ula, etc., then um, it might be different. Uh, but, you know, here, uh, the, the, the relying on what was often portrayed as being the later tahqiq um, on what logic is, which is that, uh, and so al-ambabi here is, is saying that logic study conceptions and ascents insofar as they lead to the discovery of new previously unknown conceptions and ascents. But it doesn't investigate conceptions and ascents with respect to their existing or not existing in the mind, or with respect to whether they subsist in nafs al-amad, irrespective of a subject, knowing subject, or constitute the object of a pure perspective, like the fangs of a rule. So those are the atibarat ikhtira'iyya, so like, uh, uh, what is it? Something al-aghwal, al-fangs, I can't remember. It's that uh, endlessly overused um, example, or bahar min zitbaq, for example. What's the other one? Uh, I can't remember the word for fangs. Anyway, um, uh, anyab, anyab al-aghwal or something? I can't remember any. Is it? Um, anyway, so... Uh, so it doesn't um, uh, look at it from that perspective, irrespective of the perspective of several, or, or whether it constitutes the object of a pure perspective, like the fangs of a rule and like mental propositions. Log logic does not investigate them from these viewpoints because they are not relevant to its aim. In fact, logic cannot act independently to prove anything because, as it says in Hassan Chelebi on the Mu'aqif, Proof only takes place by means of a demonstration that has a particular form that obtains via logic and particular matter that cannot be known from it. Are you talking about substance? Are you talking about uh, secondary intelligibles? Are you what, what is the ontological status? What is the essence before you even determine the ontological status, status of a thing? Um, when I say, for example, kul ma'adum mutamayiz or kul mutamayiz thabit for kul ma'adum in thabit, um, every distinct, every uh, non-existent object that is non-existent in kharij, extramental particulars, um, it's worth being aware, if one isn't already, that when you encounter the term ma'adum in uh, our traditional philosophy and logic and so on, um, oh, sorry, uh, you, 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 you're not, it doesn't mean al ma'adum al mutlaq or al ma'adum al sirf or al ma'adum al, yeah, al ma'adum al sirf, al adam al sirf. It, it means, um, uh, sorry, so it's just uh, yeah, that's perfect. Thank you. Um, it's, um, it means that it's just not an, it's, it's, it's something which is an intentional object which doesn't exist in extra mental particulars, i.e. it's not individuated. But if you say kul 
ma'dum mutamayiz, every ma'dum thing is distinct. Wa kul mutamayiz thabit, and everything which is distinct exists in itself or subsists in itself. Um, therefore, every non-existent object subsists in itself. But logic's not telling you that. Logic's just saying every A is B and every B is C, so every A is C. What's telling you that is the principles underlying that make it necessary or that justify your saying that every uh, distinct thing is thabit. Why does that have to be the case? Well, there has to be a principle of unity that's actually existent, which gives rise to the distinct form of the thing in question, whether it's a phoenix or it's a secondary intelligible, it's a pure concept of, of being or, or unity or essence or relation or um, whatever it happens to be. Uh, so whether it's aratibari ikhtira'i or aratibari haqiqi, the aratibari haqiqi, you'll remember, exists in nafs al-amr. The aratibari, the ikhtira'i doesn't, but actually, fit-tahqiq, it does as well. And actually, fit-tahqiq, and this is a kalam khas, tahqiq Gandalf exists eternally, distinctly, in the intelligible realm. Gandalf, from the Lord of the Rings. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. It's a, it's a, it's a. Look, I'm not the one saying it. It's. I know it's a controversial statement, but uh, Galambo he says this. Uh, he doesn't particularly mention Gandalf, as I recall, but uh, he says, "Kullu ma natasawruhu falahu." It has a, a mahia existing uh, timelessly. I can't remember exactly about it. falahu. That's one of his recital. Anyway, and that's a principle in Dawani. Um, and uh, and, and it, it's something that will come into clearer relief what we mean by this. Um, and it's it's really about the 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 in, intrinsic timelessness of intelligible entities. When when do things become temporal and mixed up with temporality? And it's also, if you if you put it into a theological context, everything which is a possible object of knowledge i.e. an actual object of knowledge, has to exist. He has to know it eternally. He knows it eternally. Of course, does it have substantial existence? No, Allah exists, and then there's a type of e'atibari being that it has, and so that doesn't in any way compromise the divine unity. Um, but... Um, so, you know, the, the, when I... Whatever chain of reasoning that I am employing, let's say kul wa kul hadith for kul hadith. Okay, how do I know that kul jism uh, uh, that everybody is in, a, in change and flux? How do we know? Not from logic. Might say it's from the senses, might say it's from something else. Um, is there a hidden metaphysical principle there? Or is it even not true? But logic can't tell you. Logic can just check whether you, your reasoning is right once you get started. That's why the um, definition of logic in terms of a 
الجهة الوحدة العرضية in terms of the غايه is آلة قانونية تعصم مراعاتها الذهن عن الخطأ في الفكر right so uh, it's a uh, آلة because من علوم الآلة uh, that when you give due consideration to all of its rules and everything it protects the mind from making mistakes in thought that's the that's not the subject but that's the that's the in terms of the raya, in terms of the final cause what what is logic so proof only takes place by means of a demonstration that has a particular form that obtains via logic and particular matter that cannot be known from it logic the particularities of the matter of propositions cannot be known through logic they're known through metaphysics they're known through physics they're known through ethics they're known whatever it happens to be because you can reason about all of them the only thing one derives from the science of logic is knowledge of the general suitability of principles which are known through other sciences to all possible results and attach. Even though all of the principles of logic are necessary, it is certainly the case that mistakes can be made pertaining to the aspect that constitutes the matter of propositions. So, consequently, logic cannot even tell us whether nafs al-amr itself actually exists at all. Paradoxically, although it is the science that we utilize to try to guarantee our arrival at truth, it is unable to tell us whether there is even such a thing as truth. So it has to, I mean, in, in a, a given logical system, logic for it to be coherent as a science has to assume that mental propositions are of greater predicative scope, and we'll talk about that later, uh, than um, ones which pertain to extra mental propositions. So th there are extra mental propositions in logic. There are so al qadaya al kharijiya, al qadaya al zihniya, and al qadaya al haqiqiya, which means al qadaya al nafs amriya, however you'd, you'd say it. So, um, so you know, for, for predication to be possible, you need to assume that mental propositions are of broader predicative scope than extra mental particular propositions. But anyway, we'll talk about that when we get to Sayyid uh, al-Sharif al-Dajani and his thing, so, uh, which is quite soon. So um, it is unable to tell us whether e there is even such a thing as truth. So it can, I mean, it has to be defined from outside, but it can account for what it is that allows it to operate, you know, what is the basis for predication, what, what is entailment, what, what's required in to, 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 to have entailment, you know, what do you need to have in your hypothetical syllogism and your disjunctive thing about and your categorical syllogism and, you know, where are all the middle terms and what are the different moods and the quantifiers and all of that kind of stuff. But it can't, it doesn't even have a concept built into it of truth unless it's defined from something outside. It can't yield it itself. So, can we go on, Marlena? Instead, it is philosophy that has this task. According to a widespread descriptive definition, it is the science of the states of the essences of existent things as they are, to the extent of man's capacity in nafs al-amr. One branch of philosophy studies entities that do not depend on matter, neither in extramental particulars nor in intellection, and this is the highest science and is known as the divine science, and as first philosophy and universal science and metaphysics. Which uh, is from, sorry, 
that is from Hidayat al-Hikmah. The science of metaphysics discerns that, that truths cannot be reducible to correspondence to extramental particulars, because extramental particulars cannot themselves account for abstract truths or the reality of first principles, nor even the, for the accurate correspondence of the mind to the world of extramental particulars. Nor can truth be reducible, be reducible to correspondence to the mind, for false, nonsensical, and impossible propositions obtain in minds. Truth thus must, thus must be correspondence to a third realm, nafsul amr, which transcends the mind. Metaphysics then acknowledges that if nafsul amr did not actually exist, truth, which is its correspondence to it, would be an empty fantasy. Thus it must, ne must next seek to determine the actual nature of the entity or realm that is nafsul amr. Yet it is here that things break down. By reflecting on extramental facts, mental entities, propositions, and the phenomenon of truth as universal, Peripatetic metaphysics has enabled us to deduce that nafsul amr is an existent guarantor of truth beyond the, both the mind and extramental particulars. Yet it can do little more than speculate about what it in fact is. It does not enable us to meet nafsul amr. The discursive intellect can go no further than this, unless the receptive intellect provides it with more matter, that is, more experiential content to apply itself to. The theories of Ibn Bahauddin, see section 3.3, and Qaisari, chapter 4, both writers in the broadly Platonizing school of Ibn Arabi each employ or presuppose some degree of rational demonstration, but perfect the results of rational demonstration with intuitive and spiritual results and the data of revelation, providing a path to integrative and universalizing theories of truth, which are demonstrably, demonstrably more, explanative, more explanative and less susceptible to contradiction and skeptical challenges than theories that preclude those latter sources of knowledge. Indeed, their master, Sadruddin al-Qunawi, had made clear in his writings that representatives of that school share a vocabulary with more conventional philosophy for a very good reason. It is because the mystical vision of reality fully encompasses the vision of reality that, that can achieve, be achieved via philosophy, and can thus anticipate the degree of reality that philosophical methods will be able to comprehend in the event that, that the mystical vision be expressed in these philosophical terms, which is often the best language for this purpose, due to the plenitude of the divine largesse. Due to the plenitude of the divine plenitude, largesse. Plenitude. Yeah. Plenitude of the divine largesse. Such a discourse becomes too distinct. Such a discourse becomes two distinct discourses, such that the, spec that the speculative philosopher may achieve in reading such works a high degree of truth that illuminates his intellectual journey, even if he is, he is as yet unable to join the ranks of the mystical reader who perceives the full denotation of its meanings via mystical unveiling. Yeah, um, I've got the note 54. The Iranian edition, page nine. In occupying various intelligible positions of priority and posteriority in the hierarchical scheme of order uncovered by the more holistic mode of reason we advocate in this study, whose primary intuition is not the empirical particular, but rather the one over the many which uncovers this intrinsic order, these haqqaiq, these ob objects of mystical cognition, leave their imprint on reality by informing an intelligible order accessible by this henological experiential reason. 
a reason illuminated by direct experience of, the, of those realities will experience that intelligible order, but without the benefit of experience, reason nonetheless remains not entirely bereft, still able to discern that order, however faintly, through a glass darkly. Can we stop there, my learner? Sorry. <clears throat> Uh, before we go on, I just actually missed a note that I wanted to read, uh, which is my note for when I say earlier on um, the, the sentence we started with today, actually. Um, it uh, uh, Let us briefly indicate how it is able to show up the limitations of purely logical or even metaphysical treatments. What shows it up? It's the the extraordinary distinction of Sheikh al-Akbar between al-aql min haythu qabil wal-aql min haythu mutafakkir. So just to clarify this usage of metaphysical, I mean metaphysical, it says here in the note, in the narrower sense of the first philosophy of post-Avicenan hikmah and kalam. Um, so it's not the metaphysics that we really believe in. Um, so... Um, sorry. Yeah. So instead, it is philosophy that has this task, telling us whether there is such a thing as truth. So, bottom of page 22. So, according to a widespread descriptive definition, Rasam, um, it is the science of the states of the essence of existence. I mean, no, it's uh, to the extent of man's capacity in nafs al-amr. Um, and one branch of philosophy studies entities that do not depend on matter, neither in extramental particulars nor in intellection. And this is the highest science and is known as the divine science and as first philosophy in universal science and metaphysics. And you can read more about this particular way of looking at it in Maulana Karim's paper, as I recall. So the science of metaphysics discerns that truth cannot be reducible to correspondence to extramental particulars, because extramental particulars cannot themselves account for abstract truths of the reality of first principles. They also seem in and of themselves to lack that dimension of universality, um, uh, which is necessary for truth. When we say that something is true, uh, actually, Molana, Sheikh al-Islam, Mustafa Sabri, not Ibn Taymiyyah, uh, he, he uh, makes this very, very, uh, more than adequately clear and beautifully clear in his Mawqif al-Aql, when he says that there is never ever any knowledge of an extramental particular. Sense, sen the senses don't yield knowledge, ever. They, don't, they can't yield a universal proposition. I mean, look at the structure of induction also. They can't yield a necessary universal proposition that laya tachallaf, because it may be that at some point in the future, if you're not looking at a metaphysical principle, the thing that was green yesterday will be red. Um, you know, or you'll find a, 
another animal that chews in a certain way, or you'll find a swan which is black, or whatever it happens to be. Um, so, but also on a more fundamental level, the the sensible object is not intrinsically intelligible. It's sensible, but it's not intelligible. So, you know, if I'm just talking about sense data, uh, there's nothing there's nothing in sense data which itself yields the distinctness of the principle of unity, which is informing that sense data as an individual object such that it can be picked out as that particular entity. There's nothing in the, the pure sense data that does that. So metaphysics discerns that the extramental particular can't be that realm. There has to be an intelligible realm in some way or other, whether it is um, uh, construed as an immanent realm as in Aristotle, or it's construed as a transcendent realm as in Plato. Um, the fact remains that there is an intelligible realm. What is the intelligible? There are two meanings of intelligible. I must remind us the intelligible, which were used all the time interchangeably. One of them is that something is intelligible if it's knowable and in a more colloquial sense, if it just makes sense. But what we mean, the other meaning, and we do use that all the time, but the, the including in here, but the other meaning is uh, that which is the object of the intellect that thing, that being, which is the object of the intellect, not the senses, right? So metaphysics says for truth, to, for truth to be possible, for this thing called truth to be possible, there has to be an intelligible realm. They can't, we can't derive the notion of truth and, or ground the notion of truth or the reality of truth in sensible particulars. It's impossible. So nor can truth be reducible to correspondence to the mind. Again, a certain type of idealism that leans towards solipsism, solipsism, is that the word? I think so. Uh, but but, but, but that leans towards the confinement of the knowing subject in his own subjectivity, such that it can't be exceeded and that anything that purports to exceed his own subjectivity is also within his own subjectivity. Um, uh, also cannot account for, for, for the difference between true and false propositions. If everything is in my mind, then all the stuff that seems true is in my mind and all of the stuff which seems false is in my mind. Uh, and of course, the notion of a, of a correspondence theory is ruled out. Molana Sidi Ahmad, welcome to Siberia. <laughs> Are you all right? This is fine. Alhamdulillah. But have you got a coat at least? Yes. Yes. Oh, thank God. Alhamdulillah. Is that a heater there? Yes. That's working. Alhamdulillah. Uh, nor can truth be reducible to correspondence to the mind for false, nonsensical, and impossible propositions obtain in minds. 
Truth thus must be correspondence to a third realm, nafsul amad, which transcends the mind. But there's a, there's a distinction between knowing that something exists and knowing what it is. And, and you, you can know that something exists, and, and of course that entails that you have some, at least to min waj about what it is, but you might not know the kun, the, the innermost essence of what it is. Of course, the, the clearest example of that is Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala, and this is something you'll find in the uh, Razian tradition, and you'll find in the broad Kalam tradition, you'll find in every tradition, I mean, it's basically everyone agrees, and in the Akbarian tradition, that we, we know the existence of Allah Taala, but we don't know Allah Taala in his innermost essence, and only Allah can possibly know him, and of course there's a himself, and there's a, there's a, there are yani, arguments for this which stay within the ken of Alm al-Kalam, and then there are, there are Akbarian arguments which are more to do with the that anything that that you could cognize directly in a madhar is not is by definition not going to be Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. Anything which is muqayyad is finite, even if it's the haqiqa Muhammadiyya, even if it uh, yani is an archangel or even if it's something which in its presenting itself only presents itself as direct knowledge of, of the divine essence. Even that would not be the divine essence in itself. It would be a mother. And it doesn't mean that you are not receiving a real knowledge. What does it say in the Salat al-Mashishiya? The Prophet Islam, the Haqiq Muhammadi is the, is the supreme madhar of Allah It's the vision in which the fullest knowledge of the nature of Allah becomes attainable. And it is one of the maratib of the divine presence because the Haqiqa Muhammadiyah is al-wahda, it's qadim, and uh, uh, but but it's not Allah in his innermost essence, in himself, because it's a madhar. Um, so this distinction between knowing the existence of something and knowing the essence of something is very, very important. So what I'm saying here is that in metaphysics, as Yani, uh, in terms of the kind of limitative sense of metaphysics that we specified, metaphysics can tell you about the existence of Nafs al-Amr. Why? Because extramental particulars can't account for truth. Why? Because the mind can't account for truth. So there has to be a realm, an intelligible realm, in which the, 
being can be convertible with truth, but in a way which does justice to what we actually find in the world, which is that things are not limited to extra mental particulars. And indeed, extra mental particulars cannot even provide their own intelligibility. Um, so it can do little more than speculate about what peripatetic metaphysics has enabled us to, to deduce that Nafs al-Amr is an existent guarantor of truth beyond both the mind and extramental particulars, yet it can do little more than speculate, speculate, you know what speculating is, but speculate about what it in fact is. It does not enable us to meet Nafs al-Amr. The discursive intellect can go no further than this unless the receptive intellect provides it with more matter, that is more experiential content to apply itself to. The theories of Ibn Bahaddin and Qaysari, both writers in the broadly Platonizing school of Ibn Arabi, each employ or presuppose some degree of rational demonstration, but perfect the results of rational demonstration with intuitive and spiritual results and the data of revelation, providing a path to integrative and universalizing theories of truth, which are demonstrably more explanative and less susceptible to contradiction and skeptical challenges than theories that preclude those latter sources of knowledge. Indeed, their master, Saruddin al-Qunawi, has made clear in his writings that representatives of that school share a vocabulary is more conventional philosophy for a very good reason. It is because the mystical, and you see an extraordinary level of crossover in the terminology that you find in Avicenna and, and other of the great Islamic philosophers and what you find in the Akbarian tradition, starting with the Aql al-Awwal and going from there. But also a lot of the apparatuses of general metaphysics, just talking about Umur Amma and secondary intelligibles and all that kind of thing is also something that they, they adopt as a scientific language, as an Ilmi language. It is because the mystical vision of reality fully encompasses the vision of reality. So there is no split in reality. Um, this is not the Lutheran or a Soterist split between the, the accursed, unintelligible, bad material world and then you know, the world of experience and cash for faith or whatever it happens to be, um, which is uh, the only possibility of, of knowledge. And so that you know, essentially reality is bifurcated into this dichotomous world of, of light and darkness. Fadal. But could you, could you come up? If you just come up and hold this, because it's got the microphone on it. Sorry to interrupt you. Um, mm -hmm. I just had a question on the previous thing you mentioned. Yeah. So you said that intelligibility is the object of uh, the mind, of, uh, of the Akhan. Mm -hmm. So... Uh, the intelligible. The intelligible, yes. Yeah. yeah. Um, so at the level of Ahadiyya, yeah. You were, you were basically saying that Allah cannot be, at the level of the essence, cannot cannot be intellected. Mm. Um, because, I mean, one idea is, I guess, the fact that if it's the object of your intellect, then there's a kind of almost relation in that sense. And yeah. therefore, like, there is no even relations at this level. Exactly. But then that wouldn't imply that Allah is unintelligible. Exactly. Very good. So I'd just like you if you could explain that a bit more. 
Um, because well, how you just did, you basically. <laughs> I couldn't have done better. Um, okay. At this point of the di the distinction between um, and and uh, Sidi Kareem taught this to me very beautifully once once upon a time. I can't remember exactly when, but the the um, the distinction between <clears throat> the fact that ineffability does not entail unintelligibility, and this is thanks, Sidi. That that, that that's uh, you know a um, a objection which is leveled against negative theology very often, um, which is that, well, you're talking about nothing because you're saying that Allah Taala is none of these things, um, but, but ineffability doesn't entail unintelligibility. Allah Taala exceeds any finite concept, but he's also the cause of every finite concept. And it, um, but very good uh, point. Um, I don't want to digress too much into it now, just because it's not our specific focus, but there is more on that in Maulana Kareem's book, I believe. Um, because again, this is you know, uh, closely related to the idea, well, does, does the principle of non-contradiction break down at a certain point? Um, and a lot of Sufis have wanted to, um, have wanted to say that it does, uh, neo-Sufis, of course, uh, uh, and, and this is something that um, Sidi Kareem does a beautiful tahqiq of. He says that the principle of contradiction ceases to apply on a certain ontological resolution. It doesn't cease to be valid, which is a very important distinction. Um, so, so why does the Akbarian tradition bring in all of this Avicen and other terminology? He says, well, the, the mystical vision of reality fully encompasses the vision of reality that can be achieved via philosophy and can thus anticipate the degree of reality the philosophical methods will be able to comprehend. There is no split in reality, Sheikh Abu Qadr Sufi. In the event that the mystical vision be expressed in these philosophical terms, which is often the best language for this purpose, Due to the plenitude of the divine largesse, al-ilahi, such a discourse between becomes two distinct discourses, such that the speculative philosopher may achieve in reading such works a high degree of truth that illuminates his intellectual journey. If, even as he is yet unable to join the ranks of the mystical reader, we only has flashes of it, uh, who perceives the full denotation of its meanings via metaphor, metaphysical, myst, mystical unveiling. In occupying various intelligible positions of priority and posteriority in the hierarchical scheme of order uncovered by the more holistic mode of reason, we advocate in this study, whose primary intuition is not the empirical particular, but rather the one over the many which uncovers that intrinsic order. We'll go back to that. These haqqaib, these objects of mystical cognition, leave their imprint on reality by informing an intelligible order accessible by this henological experiential reason. reason. So the primary intuition, the starting point of metaphysics, where are we starting um, in our ascent in knowledge, in our epistemological ascent? Um, there's a very, very interesting book, which I highly recommend. It's by, it's really one of the most important philosophical works written in the last few decades. 
Um, and it's hugely illuminating because it's also very richly historical and, and kind of illuminates these historical transitions that have given rise to the great changes in philosophy. Um, and it's Arbogast Schmidt's Modernity and Plato. Plato and Modernity. To this day, I can't remember whether it's Modernity and Plato, but even though I wrote my dissertation and I sent it to Arbogast Schmidt, and then I realized that I'd got it wrong <laughs> after I'd sent it. And he very politely didn't say anything, but um, it was right there in the title. So I got the title of his book completely wrong. Anyway, um, he is talking about the, 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 what is the most char characteristic defining feature of philosophical modernity and, and he identifies it as, of course, you could identify it with Kant and the you know, voluntarism, the move to the idea that uh, will is prior to essence or the self-determining individual or you could, uh, or Kantian uh, subjective idealism or, you could, you, or date it to Descartes or all sorts of different things. But more fundamentally, it is this transition, which is from the but between two conceptions of rationality, and that is the subtitle of the book, two conceptions of rationality or two paradigms of rationality. One is the Platonic Aristotelian and one is the early modern. And what happens fundamentally is that in the early modern, the primary intuition of reality becomes the empirical particular. And in fact, so our primary means of acquiring knowledge of the world is, is already contained in the intuition. Well, now, what, is it, what do we mean by intuition? This is important because people often think we're talking about sort of a fuzzy thing. Intuition means broadly, and this is what Kant takes up, but it, it holds very well for these other things. It, it broadly means the direct relation of the knowing subject to the object without intermediary. So, um, so the, the direct knowledge of the empirical particular for thinkers like Dan Scottis and Ockham uh, becomes the empirical particular and that already contains, which takes on a kind of mystical significance because it already contains in itself more, more fullness of reality than we will able, ever be able to derive from analyzing it. Which means that, because uh, Yani in the Platonic tradition, in the Aristotelian division, uh, 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 tradition, broad, very broadly speaking, you take a certain amount from the empirical particular, um, but you don't take what the essence of the empirical particular is from that initial intuition or from even any of the fundamental elements of the empirical particular that you can analyze, you get it from situating the empirical particular in the intelligible world so that its essence becomes, you become acquainted with its essence through different, uh, through, you know, applying logical first principle to it through division, um, 
through uh, a whole host of different, uh, placing it into the categories, um, and a whole host, and uh, yeah, then there are differences between Plato and Aristotle, but the point is, there are whole, and the, the, the governing principle there, of course, is the principle of non-contradiction that governs those, those explorations and that manner in which the empirical particular is placed into the intelligible world. But the point is, the, the knowledge process, the, pro, the, 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 the procedure by which full intellection of an essence is achieved uh, is, is a, a process of leaving the sensible and until one is able to situate the empirical particular in the intelligible realm by uncovering its essence, right? So uh, he, he, it's a fascinating book, very worth looking at. And that's what it's basically, I mean, it's about, it's amazing. It's, it's one of those books which just brings in absolutely everything. Um, but uh, but, but in, in our understanding, the one over the many is the primary intuition. What are we directly acquainted with? Where we, we see the intelligible world before we see the sensible. There's no process, there's no pure sense datum. We, we, we are experiencing the reality of the presence of the one over the many, as it were, before we are able to make sense of of what is there in the empirical particular, the empirical, uh, I mean, that's what it is, is already presupposed such that when the empirical presents itself, it's already categorizable and it, it all, it, it, the, the world is not this inchoate mess of, of, of sense data, but is, is it already presents itself as distinct and under metaphysical categories, not necessarily Aristotelian categories. Um, So, yeah, oh, there we are, yeah. But in any case, uh, this is something we're going to come back to, to in chapter four. So I, I'm not going to, perhaps we can read on there, Lena. Do you remember where we got to? <laughs> It is, after all, possible for the single effusion of being and truth to overflow into the realm of speculative thought, such that the principles of mystical unveil unveiling become accessible even to that familiar particularized framework. For human reason constitutes a limitative power of the human spirit. The spirit with says. The spirit that with respect to itself possesses a much broader scope of knowledge of reality. Reason is a power which with which with respect to its temporal unfolding constitutes the process by which multiplicities are subsumed into unities in accordance with the dictates of causal priority and posteriority. Yet that temporal process thereby uncovers realities that are in themselves timeless. Indeed, the structures of reason in themselves are timeless. It is only with their respect to their instantiation within our states of physical situatedness that they take on <laughs> modes of subordinate contingency with respect to individual temporal unfolding. Thus, an elevated form of holistic reason which recognizes that the ap appearances of reason are only possible because of prior, exempl prior exempl exemplary forms that grant them intelligibility and rootedness in being is capable from, be from behind the veil, as it were, 
of demonstrating the truth of certain Kashfi realities without having yet experienced, having yet witnessed them by means of Kashf. The relation between Kashf and speculative investigation can also obtain from the opposite starting point. The demonstrative proof corresponding to a Kashfi reality may also be obtained from the Kashf experience itself, insofar as the causal priority and subsumption of multiplicities into unities encountered in some mystical experiences possess their analogues in the logical order after the mystic has, mystic has returned to more or less familiar ordinary spatiotemporal conditions. The fact implied by this plenitude of the divine largesse that different degrees of access to the same truth exist corresponding to, an, to different philosophical traditions was widely recognized by a number of ostensibly more mainstream philosophers who mostly lived and worked during the 600 years of the Ottoman Empire, although many of them were in Iran or India. At the end of his broadly Avicenna commentary on Athiruddin al-Abhari's Hidayat al-Hikmah, for example, the philosopher, mystic, and Shafi'i judge, Qadi Hussein Mayboudi, tells enthusiastic students ready to progress, progress to the next level of philosophy, quote, it is my view that the seeker after the truth must read the books of the two sheikhs, Abu Ali ibn Sina, and Shihabuddin al-Maqtul, Sufrawardi. May God sanctify their secrets. However, beyond their domains, there is a domain of elevated standing, like the red sulfur, al-Kibrit al-Ahmar, and success in attaining it to it can only be granted by God, the greatest, al-Akbar. Can I just say in the note that Qadi um, Hussein was executed by the early Safavid regime for his ardent Sunnism, Maybudi makes it clear then with this unmistakable reference to Ibn Arabi that attaining to true knowledge involves transcending the mere level of mere philosophy. It is, also, it is highly significant that this commentary on Hidayatul Hikmah, Qadi Mir as it became to be known, has probably been the most widely taught single textbook on Islamic philosophy of the past, of the past several hundred years in madrasas throughout much of the Islamic world. If the fact that all the students who finished the book must have read the words quoted above does not constitute conclusive proof that the notion of successive degrees of knowledge crowned by the school of Ibn Arabi was completely normative in later Islamic civilization, it certainly shows that it would have been a notion that was rightly familiar, that was highly familiar to a great many aspiring ulama. The members of the school of Ibn Arabi are the preeminent examples of thinkers who were able to draw on the full scope of both experiential and rational sources of knowledge. It is not difficult to show that the former source, in fact, demands a much more stringent standard of epistemological warrant than the latter, but space and scope do not allow us to go into this here. For our purpose, purposes, the important thing is to affirm that no leap of faith is required in order for the results of this mystical school to be taken seriously as constituents of philosophically meaningful discourse. Their acknowledgement and embracement of the value, though it be carefully demarcated of pure reason and their constant consistent use of both philosophical terminology and speculative arguments to explain or supplement the data of cash ensures that their, that their positions are almost always intelligible and carefully substantiated even on the rational level just very quickly the note there is quite significant um Tashko Brazada straightforwardly tells us this is in Miftah Saada that the experiential philosophy, al-Hikmah al the most prominent later representatives of which he lists as Mullah Fanari, Jalal al-Din al-Dawani, and their leaders, quote, Sadruddin al-Qunawi and Qutub al-Shirazi, 
more on whom see before, relies on the way of purification rather than the way of speculative thinking. However, and most significantly, there is a level of speculative thought which shares a border with the way of purification. So there's a level of speculative thought that shares a border with the way of purification and which has a similar definition, namely the way of experience, which is called experiential philosophy like hypnotherapy. Oh dear, it says the mystical synthesis of Ibn Hattin, Taba forthcoming 2021. So we've got about three weeks to, <laughs> to get there. <laughs> Can we go on, Melana? Their openness and receptivity to a higher mode of neurotic comprehension simply has the function of making their arguments more credible, rounded, and powerful. In our times, in a world that sometimes seems irredeemably agnostic, and in which endless varieties of skeptical uh, skepticism and relativism congest the mental scenery of the majority of even traditional Muslims, harnessing the full range of the epistemological apparatuses that our great traditions represent is of the utmost necessity. In providing a new formulation of, broad, of a broadly Avicenno-Akbarian and higher Kalam account of the ontological ground of objective truth that meets the specific, the specific philosophical challenges of our times, this short study hopes to provide some idea of how this can be possible. So, um, can I just say very quickly, because um, I do want to start chapter two today, so that we can actually finally get into doing some of the actual metaphysics. Um, but uh, the, the, when it says uh, on middle of page 24, um, the principles of mystical unveiling become accessible even to that familiar particularized framework. Well, what's an example of that? Well, one example of that is Nafs al-Amr, because it's very interesting that the tahqiq, what came to be understood to be the tahqiq of, of, of what is Nafs al-Amr in the Kalam tradition, came from the Akbarian tradition. And it was because it was possible to derive some Burhani, some degree of Burhani knowledge of what are really Kashfi realities, that it was possible to integrate this into a Kalam framework. Of course, you find also in Qaysari, you have uh, Aqli arguments for certain what are really Kashfi realities. You have it in Qaysari, you have it in you have this in 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 the the the, the school of the of the commentators and Sheikh Al Akbar uh, in general, uh, and you also have it. Um, uh, of course, in Mullah Fanadi and Misbah al Unz, and uh, that's one of the, the greatest examples in Sa'at in Adina bin Turka. Uh, and you have it in, of course, uh, Mullah, uh, what's his name? Mullah uh, Sadra. Mullah Sadra. Shall we go on with chapter one? Chapter two the study of things as they are history and methods. 2.1, Nafs al-Amr and the proposition. For students of the Islamic sciences to this day, Nafs al-Amr makes its first rather innocuous seeming appearance in the chapter on propositions, Badaya, 
at, the, at about the midway point of a number of important standard logical textbook, logic textbooks. The words of the celebrated metaphysician and the logician Mullah Fenari in his commentary on the Isa Ghuji are one important example. Commenting, commenting on Abhari's definition of a proposition, a statement whose utterer can be can validly be said to be truthful or, or untruthful. Mullah Finari explains that judgments are enunciations of that which is actual in things as they are. Although, as we saw in chapter one, the validation of the concept of truth is not part of the subject matter of traditional logic, this short sentence, sentence shows how, at times, metaphysical concepts may put in an appearance in the outer regions of a lower science, such as logic, exactly in order to guarantee the intelligibility of that science. The judgments, the judgments supervening on the apprehension of propositions studied by logic are the means by which truths in nafs al-amr, that is an inobjective reality, are conveyed. It is significant that Abhari's formulation is identical to the manner in which Avicenna defines propositions in his al-isharat with tanbihat because this constitutes another amongst almost innumerable examples of the integration of Avicenna's thought into the Sunni Madrasa curriculum. In his chapter on propositions, a Sheikh al-Rais, the principal Sheikh, explains that the truth of a proposition is not contingent on its correspondence to particularized essences, al-A'yan. Affirmation in categorical propositions, like our statement, man is an animal, means that the thing we suppose in the intellect to be a man, we must also suppose and judge to be an animal, irrespective of whether it exists or does not exist in particularized essences. In his famous commentary, Nasir al-Din al-Tusi expands on this, exist, expands on this. Quote, existing in particularized essences is not a condition of the validity of the subject of a proposition, for we make affirmative, affirmative judgments on subjects that do not exist in particularized essences, brackets, not to mention negative judgments, close brackets. And as in our judgments about geometrical figures, even though we do not judge that they exist, end quote. By exists, of course, atusi means the extramental individuated existence, al-wujud al-kharaji, of particularized essences, al-a'yan. As a consequence of this principle, merely obtaining distinctly in the intellect affords a thing sufficient eligibility for it to constitute a meaningful component of a true prop proposition. Indeed, propositions can embody truths entirely without reference to extramental individuated existence. Yet in lieu of any possible empirical reassurance, what could constitute the guarantor of the truth or otherwise of such propositions? In his Tajrid, as we have noted, is a meta which as we have noted is a metaphysics textbook of the greatest centrality to later Islamic history. Tusi already has Tusi has a ready answer, which serves as a crucial and fundamental basis for the subsequent treat for subsequent treatments. Quote, if the intellect makes judgments upon extramental uh, things with the like of them, correspondence to extramental particulars must obtain in all true instances of such propositions. Otherwise, no such correspondence is necessary. Rather, true propositions, true propositions that do not correspond to extramental particulars are true insofar as they correspond to that which is in nafs al-amr rather than to the mind because of the possibility of conceiving of false propositions. And so if the intellect makes judgments upon extramental things with the like of them, 
right? Correspondence detrimental particulars must obtain. So what's with the like of them? Well, with other extramental things. So if you say the tree is You say the tree is green, all trees are substances, whatever it happens to be, um, then you are talking about extramental particulars. Um, and if you're, so the, 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 the domain of reference the truth maker is going to be extramental particulars for that, pro that proposition. Um, otherwise, no such correspondence is necessary. Rather, true propositions that do not correspond to extramental particulars are true insofar as they correspond to that which is a nafs al-amr because of the possibility of conceiving of false propositions. So what does that mean? Uh, secondary intelligibles are an element of classification or whatever doesn't have any extramental particular reference, but it is true. Now, why is it true? It's not true because it corresponds to extramental particulars. Is it true because it corresponds to the mind? No, it's not, because one plus one equals 12 is also in the mind. So there's nothing about being in the mind which makes something true. It's not the truth maker. Whereas um, on the level of, of conceptions, it is, you know, you know, the, if, if, if uh, on wujud dhihni, if the fangs of the ghoul exist in conception in the mind, then yes, they, they exist. Um, if the bahar min zitbak, if the pegasus or whatever non-existent objects, phoenixes and, uh, and other things, and, and also uh, philosophical secondary intelligibles, uh, yes, in terms of conception, but, not, but, but this is about truth. It's not about being. If truths which are uttered about those things, truth has to be a metaphysical phenomenon. It has to transcend the imminent domain. So um, there's some notes here, nine and 10. Yeah, that is with other extramental particulars such that both subject and predicate have reference next to it. It's like some leaves are green. Um, yeah, go on, Melanish. Then at least for Hani, just kind of. The definitive commentators on the Tajreed, Shamsuddin al Isfahani, explains that in propositions in which one or both terms do not have a referent in extramental particulars, it is correspondence to Nafs al Amr identified as a broader extramental reality rather than specifically to extramental particulars that constitutes the guarantor of their truth. This is because if the mind in which the terms of the proposition become impressed were to be made to serve as this guarantor, instead of extramental particulars, obviously false propositions would be true simply by, by virtue of possessing mental forms to which the pertinent judgments correspond. Where the truth, quote, uh, the, number 12, because if we are to identify nafs al with the human mind, proposition, propositions that merely correspond to the mind would by definition be true. Quote, were the truth of a proposition to be judged in accordance to its correspondence to the forms in minds, <inaudible> our statement, man is necessary, would be true because it has a form in the mind. <inaudible> yeah. 
The mind then is no warrant of truth because it is just as prone to contain false representations and false propositions as it is true as it as it is true forms and true propositions. The mere fact that true propositions like man is a possible being exist in human minds is clearly no guarantor of their truth. And even more evidently, the fact that false propositions like man is an impossible being exists in minds is no guarantor of their truth. Crucially, then, the fact of existing in a mind is no guarantor of the truth of a proposition. And thus, and it is thus clear that the mind cannot be identified with Nafsul Emma. The impact of this simple but compelling powerful argument was a central catalyst, catalyst for the mature Islamic philosophical traditions depiction of truth as a relation to a realm or state beyond both the world of extramental particulars and to the mind itself. Could we just do re read note 14? Because this is a, a pre-written rant here, but I think it might be important to I'll read it out if it's right. So, 14. I can feel my heart race increasing as I get ready for this rant. Um, yeah, uh, the, the mature Islamic philosophical tradition. For our purposes, after the thought of the intellectual poles of the, uh, both of the intellectual poles of the Islamic tradition, Ibn Sina and Ibn Arabi, had been full, fully integrated into the normative language of that tradition and not proceed precluding their integration into the Islamic sciences in isolation from one another. That is, from the 14th century onwards in the works of thinkers like Daoud al-Qaysari, Mullah Fanari, Al-Sayyid al-Sharif al-Jurjani, Ibn Kamal, Toshkibr Zadeh, Ibn Baha'uddin and others, who in their work incorporated both the theories of Fakhuddin al-Razi's critical Abyssinianism and Sadruddin al-Qurnawi's philosophical Akbarianism, see chapter four. This is contrary to the strongly held views of certain academics such as Dmitri Gutas, who has recently felt moved to brand later Islamic thought para-philosophy in his article, Avicenna and After, the development of para-philosophy, a history of science approach. In this article, Gutas departs from his usual scholarly modus of somewhat unphilosophical but historiographically and codicologically careful Avicenna exegesis in order to offer a series of startlingly anachronistic pronouncements and what it is that constitutes real science, essentially an experimental empirically biased near positive positivist conception thereof that had no real application before the early modern period, as well as the naturalist assumption that Christianity and Islam constitute, quote, mythological approaches to reality, inherently opposed to Gutas's science, a claim which he endlessly repeats in his article, see, for example, 26, 28, and 31. One marvels at the dogmatic and simplistic narrative of scientific modernity that is uncritically rehearsed in countless passages in Gutas's article, quote, briefly, traditional beliefs in religion can be understood as the account of reality provided in a mythological narrative endorsed by a society at large. This mythological narrative is generally considered sacrosanct and in monotheistic religions immutable and unnegotiable. But scientific research discovers ways in which reality works that are inconsistent with this narrative, end quote. <laughs> Got a funny uh, comment there. If, uh, quote, 
That's page 29. Quote again, if science philosophy is the open-ended rational investigation into reality, which all who possess reason, as all humans do, can follow, these gutas, then it can be easily seen that asserting one's superior knowledge through some unspecified and mysterious inspiration, etc., negates the entire scientific enterprise. End quote. For gutas, the acknowledgement of this source of knowledge in some genres of later thought justifies what he calls, quote, the Islamic myth of prophecy through wahi, end quote. It seems that for Gutas then, the sine qua non of open-minded rational science is the requirement that one must be dogmatically closed-minded about the possibility of revelation and mystical cognition. The post-Rasian philosophical tradition had, quote, primarily theological aims in that its principal intention was to argue in favor of Islamic doctrine in philosophical terms, but it was different from the traditional theology Kalam. It was not theology in that sense. It had been broadly recognized as Gerthard Endres aptly put it, this is still uh, Gutas, that philosophy after Avicenna was drew, reduced to an instrument of religious hermeneutic. And he goes on, it violated all the basic principles of what historically had meant to do science sick, which was the open-ended rational investigation of all reality. It was not open-ended, he says, and that it strove to argue for one predetermined thesis, the Islamic mythological narrative. It was not completely rational. How can someone get away from this in, a, in an academic journal? It's just extraordinary, the methodological. It was not completely rational that it admitted selectively supra-rational modes of acquisition of knowledge. And it was not an investigation of all reality and that it uh, narrowed the discussion to certain subjects, those of interest in, uh, to religious doctrine, end quote. It is, quote again, I'm afraid, clandestine theologizing, clandestine theologizing that simulates and presents itself as philosophy, end quote. He goes on to brand later Kalam para-philosophy and understands this term to mean Quote, doing what appears to be philosophy slash science in order to divert attention from, subvert and substitute for philosophy slash science. Is there any more of a Hasim Mubin than that? I and mean, this is, do you know how important this figure is in, in uh, Yani? You know. By the time Gutas attempts to justify his position with examples, he has proceeded from the sublimely imaginative to the ridiculous characterizing the work of Ibn Kamal on the theological possibility of the eternity of the world, an exemplar of sophisticated philosophical analysis and impartiality that would be notable in any age as lacking, quote, any discernible criteria for evaluation. The arguments were just arguments and the step from these conclusions to the position challenging the mythological narrative was not or was not even intended to be taken. <laughs> It is deeply troubling, I say, to find that in our time, a so-called expert on Arabic philosophy is to be found at the culmination of his career, repeating tired 19th century tropes, dismissing the possibility that genuine philosophical activity could ever take place in a theological context, rather akin to Bertrand Russell's famous pronouncements about Aquinas not being a real philosopher. Of course, this view is no longer viewed as remotely respectable. Far from constituting a profound diagnosis resulting of deep knowledge or a startling expose, Gutas and Eichner, whose hasty and, hasty and easily invalidated conclusions, he also cites from her, her dissertation, 
simply repeats what the, again, something which is thrust upon any new student in, in, uh, in Islamic, uh, in academia, in Islamic studies, simply repeats what the later Kalam theologians explicitly state, namely that their philosophical engagement takes place in the context of the analysis of the data of revelation and the evaluation of the truth of the items of creed, just as Aquinas similarly acknowledges in his own work. Yet this in no way detracts from their serious and impartial engagement with the whole array of general metaphysical, physical and logical debates in the pursuit of truth. All philosophers cannot but have presuppositions of some sort or other. Another of Gutas's mistaken assumptions about science is its putative methodological neutrality. How does Gutas square his claim about doing what appears to be philosophy science in order to avoid doing philosophy science with the impassioned debates on the most abstract questions of general metaphysics in the categories found all throughout the later traditions of Islamic philosophy in which the concerns are not only extremely distant from any pertinence to the items of creed, but the disputants moreover end up arriving at starkly opposed results. Or for that matter, the exonerations of Avicenna against Al-Ghazali based on a more careful tahqiq reading of Avicenna's philosophy and thinkers like Hojazadi Dawani and Ibn Kamal. So I got that rant out of the way. Thank you for bearing with me. Um, sh should we just finish this paragraph so that we can just be ready to go on to, you know, quite a, a meaty section of the historical um, sketches that we'll start next time, inshallah. The impact of this simple but compelling and, compelling and powerful argument was a central catalyst for the mature Islamic philosophical tradition's depiction of truth as a relation to a realm or state beyond both the world of extramental particulars and the mind itself. Extramental particulars prove themselves unable to account for the truth of abstract propositions, and moreover, mere existence in the mind is incapable of accounting for our distinction between true and false propositions. We have already noted that one of our main tasks in this study will be to try and show, to try to show how Islamic thinkers drawing on the broadly Avicenna and Akbarian schools ultimately synthesized important principles and concepts from, the, from these two schools in order to discover the identity of this mysterious third domain of reference, Nafsul Amr. We will also argue that meeting some of the challenges posed by modern, especially post-Kantian philosophy, requires us to draw out certain possibilities hitherto enfolded in the far farthest hidden reaches of our tradition. As we will see in chapter four, these allow us to provide the beginnings of a demonstration of that a demonstration that the intelligible principles governing particulars, chiefly the transcendentals, are rooted in a hierarchy of prior exemplary meta-principles guaranteeing the intelligibility of the world and hence the possibility of objective truth. Before embarking upon this weighty task, however, it will be helpful to achieve the somewhat simpler aim of inquiring into the general manner in which the main streams of philosophy, both East and West, the broadly platonic and the broad, broadly peripatetic, have treated the notion of objective truth and to observe how these basic ideas flowed into Islamic philosophy via major thinkers like Avicenna, Averroes, Ibn Arabi, Fakhruddin al-Razi, and Nasir al-Din al-Tusi, thereby setting up some of the primary tensions that would finally be resolved only by the avicenno akbarian synthesis also presented in chapter four of this study. Thank you so much, Melana. And, uh, thank you, everyone. Um, next time, we're going to be 
is beginning 2.2 truth and things as they are historical sketches. Um, so we'll be looking into Aristotle and Plato and Augustine and Proclus, Ammonius, Ibn Sina, um, Imam al-Ghazali, Ibn Rushd, William of Orvan, Thomas Aquinas, Bonaventura, uh, Dun Scottus, Gesendi, Locke, uh, then a long section on Kant, which will probably have to take up several sections. And um, then Fakhreddin Razi, then uh, Nasiruddin Tulsi, quite extensively, then then the history is taken up in more detail in subsequent chapters. We're looking at more specific thinkers, inshallah. So, um, do we have any um, discussion points today that anyone would like to raise? I'm hoping that we'll still be alive by the time, uh, <laughs> because we're it's about minus twelve, I think, in here. Twadal city timer. Yes. Um, here we go. Uh, I, so I wanted to ask a quick question about the um, issue of uh, the mind serving as a guarantor of the truth of a proposition. Yeah. And um, the idea itself seems clear to me. What I was wondering was um, about uh, the sort of the, the proof that we offer for this for this idea that the mind can't serve as the guarantor of the truth of a proposition. And the proof sort of goes like that false propositions can obtain in minds. And so, you know, that, uh, so, uh, but, and the example that you gave of that, for example, uh, that you mentioned in, as you were speaking just now, and I think it, some of these examples come on later as well about, for example, one plus one equals 12 can obtain in the mind. And yeah. that, that, that shows that, uh, uh, the mind corresponds with the mind can't guarantee the truth of a proposition. I was wondering, do we do we really want to say that that kind of a proposition that one plus one equals twelve is something in fact that can that can uh, obtain in the mind? Because uh, it seems to me that uh, uh, that that would also sort of be akin to saying, you know, I th uh, like uh, like uh, that a circle has three sides or something like that. Something that is that can't be true. Um, uh, and the reason it seems problematic to me is, is that if we do say, in fact, that something of the sort like a three-sided circle or one plus one equals 12 can obtain in the mind, then we'd have to say that it also obtains in nafs al-amr because everything that can obtain or exist has, or wujud zaini, but then that would, would then have. Yeah, no, it's, it's a very good point. Very, very good point, yeah. Go on, sorry, I, just to interrupt. But, but no, no, that's but that is the gist of it. It's just the worry yeah. that if we say that something impossible can obtain and exist in the mind, then we would have to say that. Yeah, no, that's exists. a beautiful and very good point. And thank you. Very, very astute point. Um, uh, yeah, I mean, of course, there's a there's a there's an important principle, which is to some degree related, which is that there can't be real conceptions of of impossible entities because they don't even they, they don't present a distinct form. They're just combinatorial. Usually, you just get, you know, the concept of ta'addud and the and then the concept of of uh, a kind of universal concept of God in some meaningful definition, and um, and you stick them together, 
And I mean, that's just to take a, an obvious example from the Islamic tradition of an impossible being is um, is uh, is uh, Shariq al Bari. Shariq al Bari. So, um, but uh, you you said yes. That that would mean that they'd have to exist in Nafs al Ahmad. You're absolutely right. They do exist in Nafs al Ahmad, but they don't. That that's in terms of tasawwur, not tasdiq. It's in terms of conception, not ascent. It's not judgment. It's in terms of conception. So they're distinct forms. Anything, I think he said, sorry, I have to go back to Galambuiz Ibarra, but it's a principle you find everywhere. Anything which can serve as the subject of predication has to exist in Nafs al -Aman. That's a principle you find in Dawani. Um, which he states in his uh, commentary on the Tahdib, um, and then beca it becomes repeated endlessly everywhere. But that is the different. That is different from um, uh, th thinking something uh, in terms of judgment. Um, so uh, the agent intellect, let's say in these conceptions that we'll look at hosts false propositions in terms of health, it preserves them, their distinctness as the possible subjects of predication, but it doesn't think them as truths. Um, and so, yes, they do have a distinct mental existence, but there are mental propositions which correspond to nafs al-amr, which has to be something outside of them. And there are mental propositions which don't correspond to nafs al-amr. But, but, but of course, that's a proposition. The conception of them, yes, it corresponds to nafs al-amr. There is a, a sharik al-bari um, in nafs al-amr, but not in the ontological mode that itself purports to be in, but rather in the sense that there are human minds, you know, one of the, let's say, the entailments of, of the imaginative capacity of the human mind is to, you know, to, to um, combine these different conceptual elements. And, you know, there are perhaps sociological and anthropological and whatever it happens to be reasons that, human beings have come up with this idea of and so on. But so, you know, the concept exists in Nafs al-Amr. We can talk about polytheism. We can talk about Zeus. We can talk about the phenomenon of believing that there are multiple supreme principles, let's say in, in you know, whatever, probably straw man versions of Zoroastrian, uh, Zoroastrianism, whatever. But, uh, but that's not, that's not a, this is about how the propositions correspond to nafs al-amr. It's not about how do concepts correspond. They, they correspond to nafs al-amr just by being themselves. So they're true in the sense that, you know, they can, that being is conversed with truth and they can constitute the subjects of predication, but they're not true in the sense that um, uh, there's predication and judgment and, and, a, uh, and, a, and a description that there's a, 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 an enunciation of the nature of the intelligible world, which is that kind of, is that kind of? Yes, yes, I think, yes, yes, 
Yes, I think that's helpful. Uh, especially, I think what you said about uh, the criterion being the ability of something to serve as the subject of a of a of a proposition. That's all that we have here in mind. And I think I was trying to get at um, the conception of the thing because uh, it seems that to say, for example, a four sided triangle is just simply unintelligible. I, I can try to I can mouth the words as it were, but when I try to think of a four sided triangle, there is really nothing there at all. Yeah. But it seems that we could talk about it in the sense that I could make it part of the I make it I could make it the subject of a proposition and then you know say things about it. Yeah. Thank you very much. Um, it's a rather an alarming question actually because it reminds me of uh, how careful I need to be with you lot. Anyway, um, is, is there anyone else who has uh, something? Tafadal Maulana, Sidi, um, I always forget who MU is, but it's uh, Ozeir, yeah, yeah. Sorry, Sidi. Uh, first of all, please forgive me for not being able to um, be there. I was a little bit unwell. I didn't feel I'm um, well enough to make the journey to Siberia. Uh, oh, yeah. I don't blame you, Habibi. <laughs> my apologies. <laughs> <laughs> um, um, uh, Sidi, I wanted to ask a question with regard to the, um, what you were discussing towards the beginning of the class, yeah. um, where in which we were talking about the status of logic, or at least um, aql, um, yeah. um, and you talked about how logic um, to a large extent is kind of instrumental, doesn't provide the matter, just the shackle um, for thought. And to quote from, um, from, from the text, um, it cannot uncover an ontology. Mm. Um, and I was just um, uh, wanting for a little bit of um, elaboration on how this could be reconciled with what we studied in the earlier classes, um, I think the second or the third one, where in which you, you were talking about how mantir um, is not just an instrumental science, um, but also, in a sense, participates in reality. The maqulata, therein you talked about how the maqulata thaniya have an ontological priority um, to the maqulata ula. And therefore, mantir is not just sent about instruments and forms of thinking or something to do with epistemology. It is concerned with ontology as well. Yeah, so. that's a beautiful point. And um, but that I mean, there is to some degree an artificial separation that one can make between metaphysics and logic. But if you're considering logic without looking at metaphysics, and in a way that would be well, what you mean when you're just looking at logic. They're, they're, you know, our faculties are not really separate and our sciences are not really separate either. But if you're trying to say, well, what is logic, just logic, um, then even on the definition that we took in Malafanari City, um, City um, Ozer was amongst the people who very patiently went all the way through Malafanari's uh, commentary on Isa Ruji. Um, and um, and there his definition, which is also my favorite definition, I, 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 it was more um, uh, 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 helpful for writing my book to use the other definition because it happened to be making the point that I wanted to make. But, it, 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 but at the end of the day, even if you choose uh, the Marcoulata Thania definition of logic, which obviously is bringing in an ontological dimension because Marcolatathania are rooted in Marcolat Ula and they each have an ontological status. And the and and 
So it's about Malcolatoni secondary intelligibles in Haith or Tantabip insofar as they apply to Malcolat. So Malcolatonia Alati Layuhada Biha Amurun Filharij, they don't have anything out there that corresponds to them in the extramental particular world. Min Haithu Tantabit, insofar as they apply are made to apply to Mahulat Ula primary intelligibles, which do have something. Like man, for example, has something, there's a man, right? Secondary intelligibles, however, man is a species, man is a unity, man is a being, man, those are secondary intelligibles. So logic is, is, the, is the procedure by which you uh, can make those uh, secondary intelligibles apply to first intelligibles. So there's an ontological kind of import there. I mean, at the very re least, you're talking about extra mental and you're talking about that which doesn't have, a, I mean, there, there seems to be, it seems to be invoking mental existence and so on. But actually, when you're defining logic qua logic, even secondary intelligibles and primary intelligibles are not proved in logic. They're, they, they're, they are presupposed in logic. It's, it's in metaphysics that you uh, really determine what extra mental particulars means, uh, what primary intelligibles are, what are they rooted in, what is the epistemological function, how do secondary intelligibles arise from them. That's in metaphysics. So yes, uh, and it, we say this, in fact, it says this in what we just read a little bit, but um, but uh, yeah, the, the, the logic qua logic is not actually concerned with um, Yani. It has to import those assumptions from metaphysics. If metaphysics wasn't there underlying it, it wouldn't have them. But as I said, to some degree, the, the separation is artificial. But on the other hand, um, if you want to say, if you want to say that logic has to be placed ontologically in some way or other, which is true, it does have to be, but you have to have metaphysics in view if you're going to affirm that. But if you're, if we're trying to say, well, what is logic not with respect to metaphysics, then no, it doesn't, it doesn't have the matter. It's not, um, and even, I mean, it doesn't have the matter its own it doesn't provide its own matter or have a way really of evaluating matter really in any sense at all. It's just that insofar as metaphysics is present, then it spills over into logic. Um, does that kind of clear it up? Uh, I, I just was wondering if, if maybe this sentence uh, or, or the tone of the, those paragraphs was a little harsh because insofar as you can never separate uh, metaphysics from logic, even if you pur purportedly do, there is the uh, logic always presupposes some metaphysics. Um, yeah. it, therefore, will always reveal something of reality, often of an ontology as well. Even the ashkal are a kind of an element of reality. Uh, as, as, as Yeah, uh, that's absolutely true. Um, um, yeah, that, that's absolutely true. Uh, but but again, you know, that presupposes that metaphysics is in place. So um, there's a type of artificial separation that takes place when you're trying to analyze something uh, uh, as you know, insofar as it's possible to look at it as it is in itself without looking at something else. 
And the thing is, that's only true of logic if you already have all of your metaphysical principles in place. And in a way, the way that it's presented is a rudd on the person who wants to, to separate logic and make it freestanding. Because what we're saying is it can't be freestanding. It only make it, it will only work in a truly consistent and fully intelligible manner if it has metaphysics lying in the background. But if you try to isolate logic as people do today, it, it, uh, in any conception of it taken as it is in itself, it won't provide that. But yes, it's a very good point, Melan. Thank you. Um, Sidi Niaz, do you have something, Maulana? Yeah, do, do others have questions as well? Uh, mine is a kind of, um, it's related, but not directly to the content per se. So if others have questions as well. No, you go ahead, Maulana, because this is going to have to be the last one anyway. Okay. I'm blowing smoke out of... Uh... <laughs> Uh, we better go quickly. It's just not fair on the other people. I could stay here for hours. And... Okay. But uh... you, know, you know, Sidi Hassan, alhamdulillah, like you're working at Taba Foundation. The, the people at Taba are aware of the manner in which um, the post-classical tradition, especially in the Ottoman period and also in other parts of the Muslim world, constitute a kind of a synthesis. Yeah. Um, but like, I'll be honest with you, Sidi, uh, my encounter with this notion of, let's call it the development for now, for lack of a better term, of um, the understanding of metaphysics or the articulation of the understanding of metaphysics over the course of Islamic history, you know, that only really happened with my contact with the Ottoman Turkish tradition. And then thereafter, with people who I met here in Istanbul who had studied in India and or, or with the Khairabadi, you know, tradition <coughs> and so forth. So mm -hmm. I'm wondering, have you, has Taba thought about maybe offering a course which would actually cover the manner in which the Islamic philosophical tradition has, so to speak, articulated itself over the course of history, um, you know, up until the modern period? Because, you know, the natural recourse of uh, most people in the West want to study Islamic studies is to go to an Islamic studies faculty with a well-known or famous, you know, uh, academic. Yeah. Um, and it's not clear, aside from obviously maybe going to Zaytuna, possibly, uh, you know, what the first step might be for an average American or Canadian. Um, obviously, in, the, in Britain, you can go to the CMC, but uh, and alhamdulillah, you obviously do have contact there, but uh, the manner in which this could be possibly laid out in the form of a course or a series of lectures that could be of service to the wider Muslim, you know, uh, university public, let's say, maybe would be of immense benefits. And it would preclude having to deal with the unbelievable things that people face when they read Butas or uh, other types of things. Just wondering about that. You specify, I, 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 of course, fully agree, and I mean, it's something that you and I have discussed over many years, but I, I think just for the benefit of the others, perhaps, could you specify a little bit more exactly what you mean by the, and what, what would exactly be the um, focus of, the, of a course like that? 
the idea is to show, do you remember the talk you gave at Cambridge for the MSA at Cambridge, where you categorized the three phases? You called one of them, like think foundations. Uh, the second one, I can't remember the second one, um, beginning around the time of Razi. And then the third one you called the synthesis. This is a talk that you gave at the Cambridge MSA. Yeah, 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 no, I remember what you mean, yeah. Imagine taking that and spreading it out over 10 sessions. Mm. Like something that a Taba initiative could do possibly, at least especially for students who are kind of, you know, for the general Muslim university student um, in, in Europe and America. I'm just wondering if, I, I honestly don't think that anything like that is there. I think it would be wonderful. I think it's a brilliant idea, Sidi. And, and I think um, we'd probably want to enlist the help of, of someone like yourself. Um, I think there are a lot of activities that Taba need to expand into. Um, and we just have to look at what's the best way to, uh, to do that. But, it, but absolutely, I mean, um, something like that would be very, very helpful and beneficial. Um, there's no doubt about that. I, I mean, to some degree, we will, I mean, in this historical section, I suppose we could try to uh, yeah, I mean, provide some degree of, I mean, something which would, in some sense, give that uh, type of uh, yeah, I mean, content. But um, but absolutely, Sidi, I think it's a really good idea. I, I mean, I think so many things, inshallah, will come out of these sessions. Um, Sidi uh, Karim's uh, lecture, which is monthly, and then when, when Sidi Mustafa uh, starts to get involved after his book is published, um, I'm hoping that an awful lot of other things will, will open up. I mean, also, one has to bear in mind the 18 months of COVID that everyone's just been through. I mean, this is the reason we're speaking to you on Zoom, <laughs> because otherwise we wouldn't be. I suppose that's a blessing in disguise, um, because you know there are people here from uh, Canadians in in Turkey. Um, uh, there are people uh, Yemenis in Oxford. There are people in Spain. There are people from Zaytuna. There are people um, uh, from Abu Dhabi. There are people in different universities across England. Uh, there are people in Harvard. There are, pe there are people from all around the world here. And that's only really made possible because of some of the changes which took place. Uh, but I think as things settle and as, yani, as is hopefully happening if this Omicron um, variant doesn't take hold, which we're a bit worried about at the moment, because they're about to start making people wear masks in the university again. Um, then, but you know, I'm hoping that many of these things will be possible. You know, international travel and people actually meeting in person, and and a lot of uh, collaboration taking place. Today. But, but thank you. Um, uh, we will definitely discuss that idea and, and other such ideas. Okay. Thank, you, Tyler. thank you so much, everyone, uh, and rahmatan. Uh, I've got to close it down now because we're all absolutely freezing to death. There's no heating in this building in it. We're, we're in a, a cold, um, we're going through a, a cold uh, 
Uh, my brain is not working. Anyway, Jazakum Allah Khairan and Assalamu Alaikum Rahmatullah. We'll see you very soon, inshallah.